morning, everyone. To yet another edition of the Fountainhead Leadership Series. Today, we have with us Siddharth Nambiar, who's been a part of Amazon for almost six years now. He's built a whole bunch of businesses nearly from scratch. And uh, that's what kind of uh, makes him as cool, close to a founder as it can be in the Amazon ecosystem. So very interesting journey, very interesting place. And the topic for us today is about culture. Now, it's a complicated topic. A lot of young companies struggle with how to build and maintain the right culture within their systems. And we believe to build an enduring business, to build a sustainable play, one of the biggest pillars that will help you get there will be culture. And who better to talk about the company uh, that has been in the business for 27 years and still it's day one. Still, it's a very high energy, high innovation, aggression play. And we have Sid with us to talk about some of these things from Amazon. Thank you so much, Sid, for doing this. We'd love to hear uh, some part of your journey, maybe as a starting point. Sure. Thanks for having me, Ankur. I do need to say that what I say today are my personal views and not those of Amazon's. So that my PR team uh, knows that I'm kosher today. Um, so I've been at Amazon since 2014. We've built um, our grocery business out with the team here, and we recently started work on our healthcare business. These are sort of uh, multiple phase launches, right? So the grocery business consists of several separate uh, business models and entities. We've got our national uh, gourmet grocery business that ships two day delivery from like tens of thousands of sellers with lacks of products. We've got the uh, regional sort of business, which ships um, heavier items like atta, dal, uh, chawal, that kind of stuff to within a few hundred kilometers of our warehouses, but not nationally. Um, and so that covers, you know, 80, 90% of um, Amazon's customers in India. And then we have our uh, two hour delivery, Amazon Fresh business, which is focused on uh, the top 15 or so cities. And we're expanding rapidly. And that delivers uh, three different temperature zones, as well as uh, produce, perishables, meats. Basically, we call it the largest selection available in two hours. So that's the grocery business. And then on the healthcare side, I can't talk much about it, but we've uh, announced recently our pharmacy uh, business. And then you will also see um, uh, a lot of emerging uh, opportunities around the rest of healthcare that Amazon may explore, which we've already done in the US. So what's been the last six years like? Where did you start? Where are you now? How's the journey been? Yeah, so I started out um, in grocery. It seems like I've been, you know, leading grocery since then. So the job may seem the same from the outside, but being employee number one in that area basically means in the first year or two, I was just writing out business plans, right? So each of the businesses I talked about, each of them started from a business plan. And we can talk about that culture of creating what we call PRFAQs. And then it moves into hiring and building out a best in class team, right? So you have to hire from product, you have to hire tech, you have to hire marketing, you have to hire ops, yeah, food safety, which is a specialist compliance role for this area. So hiring out that team and then um, building out the technology, the product, uh, rolling out a beta, product market fit, everything you do in a startup, except uh, Amazon provides a kind of platform uh, which, you know, many categories sit on. And so being part of a horizontal means some of the bigger existential things you have to worry about as a founder are less uh, of a worry. I can focus more on the customer experience and less on some of the administrative burdens that founders of startups have to worry about. So that was the first few years. And then it became about scale. 
And for scale, it becomes about culture, it becomes about mechanisms, it becomes about high standards, root causes. We can talk about this stuff, but that's basically operating a business that has, you know, hundreds of thousands of um, uh, orders per day, millions of units per day across the country. And that becomes a fairly complex beast to manage with lots of macroeconomic forces, lots of internal issues. And you have to sort of keep building capability so that you're leveling up, stepping up consistently in how you perform, not just sort of forced to go back down to errors that weren't fixed before. So that comes from our culture as well a bit. Sure. So you said this whole team has been built by you. So what does the team uh, now look like in terms of size and the kind of people you have overall across the org? Yeah, across all of grocery, um, um, I'm not sure how much of this is public information. So I'll just say order of magnitude, over 100 people in what we call our head office team for the business team. There are separate tech teams, ops teams that are based all over the world. The way Amazon is organized, we don't base everyone in the same location. We're quite flexible. And then there's um, our, uh, what we call sort of on-ground teams, right? So we have warehouses uh, across India and we have um, uh, our delivery fleet across the country with delivery stations and so on. So without going into the specifics of the topology of the business, let's just say we're talking about uh, a grocery business has a independent fulfillment architecture with our own dedicated warehouses uh, that are probably the largest um, shared in, in Amazon India, and then our own dedicated delivery fleet, uh, which can enable uh, deliveries at different temperature zones and stuff like that. So, so that's kind of the makeup of the team across the head office functions and the field functions. So pretty massive scale for a five or six year horizon, I would imagine. So tell me something which is more focused on the today's agenda, right? So what is it that you would describe the Amazon culture if you have to give it in a few words? You know, um, Bezos, our founder, uh, called it day one culture, right? Which we were talking about briefly before we yes. started. And that's basically uh, his way of saying, if you think of yourself, even though, like you said, we're 20 something years old as a company, if we think of ourselves as uh, being on day one, how would we solve the problem? What would our cultural response be? How would we think about things? I think that sort of um, exhortation to say, we are in day one today, um, forces each of us as leaders to uh, not become bureaucrats, not be a slave to the process, um, not take proxies. You know, if I have a million units being shipped out in a day, the average number for any metric doesn't tell me anything useful anymore, right? Because if you look at on-time delivery, if on average I'm on time, as a simple example, it doesn't tell me that 100,000 deliveries were, you know, five minutes late on our two-hour delivery promise. I'll never know. So we can't use proxies. We have to use tail anecdotes. And that's what founders do, right? In the early part on day one, every anecdote tells you something subjective. And those anecdotes teach you things that metrics can't teach you. So that's, um, that's kind of one example of how we think about culture. But I would sort of encapsulate day one as being about how do we stay customer obsessed? Don't become internal obsessed because that's what happens when you have a mega large company. Number two would be um, fixed root causes. Don't just solve problems at the surface, go all the way down to the root cause. 
Uh, number three, I'd probably talk about people, culture, quality of talent, raising the bar constantly, that kind of thing. I think those are sort of the big levers that we have usually found um, drive our sort of day one. And then finally, you want to make sure that the speed at which you're making decisions, the degree to which you're externally focused, not internally focused, is another big part of this, right? Once you're in a mega large company or organization, it becomes easy to think my internal customer, uh, finance team asking me what happened to a forecast is more important than the, the external customer whom I may not meet in a given day, right? And so we have mechanisms, specific processes designed at a regular cadence to make sure that leaders are talking to customers, hearing from customers, listening to customers on a regular basis. And I can give some examples as we go deeper. Sure. So you said that you build this whole uh, team pretty much from scratch, right? So how did you translate the Amazon culture into what you were building from scratch? How, what kind of, let's say, organizational assistance was available and how much it was it, you know, your own translation of this DNA into how it becomes practical for the team? Yeah, I mean, I need to be humble here, right? Um, I may be speaking to you, but when I got to this business, I knew nothing about grocery, right? And so um, I feel like Number one, the organization provides a, a technology platform that is a global platform. We did have to adapt it significantly for India, just like with anything you get off the shelf. And the organization provides a brand name that is attractive to potential employees, having earned a reputation as a great place to work. So that becomes easier to attract talent. That said, to your specific question, I think that um, identifying the right person for each role is always the hardest thing in a startup, especially when you're hiring the senior team. And that's where, you know, I hired um, from Nature's Basket, their head of category management, because we started out with Gourmet Grocery. I hired from Walmart, their head of uh, food safety and compliance, who had 30 years experience, because that gentleman had previous experience with Reliance and Big Bazaar and so on. So trying to hire the industry experienced people for, for specially for specialized categories like produce and perishables, where frankly, I can never hope to have experience with sourcing from farmers and uh, density and viscosity of specific fruits and vegetables. Um, we hired someone who had 20 years experience at uh, Metro Cash and Cavi plus previous um, retailers. The idea of being hire the specialists who have that uh, capability in the industry and then complement them with a relatively speaking generalist, for example, product tech, um, some parts of business management, so that we can create a team that has a set of superpowers, not unlike a Marvel comic uh, sort of story, right? Where the team together, the superpowers complement each other. And that allows you to sort of um, make it one plus one equal to three rather than two, as the saying goes. But isn't it a bit counterintuitive? You have a bunch of these old school, 20, 30 year old uh, experienced folks, and now they're blending and working very closely with a bunch of relatively younger folks, I would imagine. How does this pan out? How do you make sure that they're actually working in the same uh, team in some sense? Because they come from very different cultures, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is what Amazon really excels at, right? Which is recognizing that our leadership principles or values, we have like 13 leadership principles, how do we imbibe that systematically in the way we operate the business? 
So we've got a bunch of leadership principles. For example, we think big. For example, we're customer obsessed, right? We take the leadership principles and we apply them to our interviewing process. So when you say there may be folks from a different culture, but when we interview, we're actually selecting the person with the right experience who most exemplifies a fit for our culture, right? So then if there are 10 people in the industry who we may need to speak to evaluate, the person we pick is the one with the greatest fit, both from their own sort of leadership style personality, as well as what they've been conditioned to over time. Now, yes, absolutely. When I hire product managers, they're going to be relatively speaking earlier in the journey than if I hire people from food safety and so on who need to have, you know, I have a PhD uh, in, in food science on the team, right? And this person has 15, 20 years experience and they come from working with farmers versus working with coders. So to help these folks work well together, we interview and then we measure performance using the same leadership principles. So then the next step becomes when you set goals, people know that how they achieve the goals has to be done through the Amazon way of operating, right? You want to be customer obsessed, you want to be deep dive, you want to be right a lot, all of that stuff. So they know and their manager knows as they execute on their goals that they have to exemplify this way of working, these leadership principles. So when they're off track, the manager helps them to come back, coaches them. So we have training programs for managers, which is called coaching for, for leadership. So we teach relatively newer managers, younger managers, how to coach employees so that they can adhere to our leadership principles as best they can. And then finally, we evaluate performance during the semi-annual process and make sure that employees who do very well on how they perform are rewarded commensurately and employees who are struggling to exemplify leadership principles, we help them and coach them. And I think that process of managing talent drives the, the, the outcome you're talking about, which is people tend to work well together because they have similar values. And those values are drilled into us through training programs in the beginning, and then reinforced through the performance management system, reinforced through coaching. We even have a mentorship system. We have a buddy system. So anyone who's struggling a bit, anyone who's new to the system and has been conditioned differently, they tend to adapt and succeed in the long term. So I have two follow-up questions here. The first one is about the speed, uh, given that you operate with a certain velocity. How do you pull that off? Second, what kind of support interest? When you spoke about mentorship, buddy system, uh, training processes, onboarding, there'd be a certain amount of support infra needed, or is it all the same part of the org structure where managers themselves translate into coaches or buddies or uh, trainers? So two questions. Sure. So on speed of execution, right? So I think the, the challenge that most organizations have, if you have high quality people who are high energy and get shit done, right? Those kind of people don't have a problem executing. They have a problem when decision-making slows down. They have a problem when there's ambiguity and sales team wants to do something and finance team wants to do something and growth team wants to do something and those pull in different directions. Then you have a problem and how do you resolve it? And typically they'll pull on someone, the founder, the leader, whoever, who doesn't quite know what the right answer is and will defer decision-making, right? That's what typically happens because they don't want to make the wrong decision either. So at Amazon, I think what's really happened is we've developed a set of thinking patterns around this. So we have a thinking pattern called, um, we delay decisions until the last responsible moment, right? 
So, so you keep deferring a decision until the moment where you absolutely have to make it or else it affects something important, critical that the leaders <coughs> make a judgment call on, right? So pick an example, should, um, should we launch 10 new cities in, I'm making it up, tier two cities in India that don't yet have Amazon Fresh? The idea may come to me today through someone writing a PR FAQ about the potential of these new cities, but I may choose to wait until our annual budgeting cycle, planning cycle, when I have to uh, help my operations teams and finance teams budget for it, hire for it, and that may be three months away. So I could take in the idea, ask more questions, get more data, get some field surveys done, have someone on the ground, have people benchmark the competitors there. All of this could be done until 90 days from now when I have to make a decision. I don't feel the pressure to make the decision until that 90th day. So I have time. So that's one principle. The other thing we do is we use narratives. We have um, written documents for almost all our meetings. And what that does is we don't jump into the meeting and have sort of the elephant and then the, the, the legal team is talking about the trunk of the elephant and then the business team that's is like, oh, that six pager you're supposed to get is all real. Exactly. Absolutely. And um, the idea being that everybody in the team who usually uh, in other companies tend to represent their functional silo, what happens with this narrative is you have the document shared beforehand with each team member, each different functional silo, and they contribute their sections. So there may be a question, uh, which is, what is the legal implication of launching in these cities? There may be another question, which is, what will be our operations cost? There may be another question, which is, what are our capital expense budget, right? Each of the functional teams contributes a section so that a general manager who leads a business is able to get an overall view and is accountable to make a high quality decision. And is also accountable to make that decision before the last responsible moment, you see? So now they're informed for the 360 degree view of all the components of the decision. Otherwise, what typically happens is passionate young person responsible for driving something will make a great presentation. Someone's not in the room. Other people say, I don't agree with this. You get sort of uh, slices of information, which is not ideal. And which is why the narrative format drives rapid decision making, high quality decisions, high velocity decisions. Um, in, in the Amazon sort of usually not the execution that gets laid is the decisioning which ends up delaying matters. That's that's what I heard you. Is that a yeah, fair I think, I think if you're organized right, you'll find that getting stuff done is not very difficult, but making the decisions, the harder decisions, is particularly difficult as you get to sort of big scale and the trade-offs are large millions of dollars. And you are you're building this whole microcosm on your own ecosystem within the grocery business while you have the larger Amazon umbrella, but you have to rebuild all of these uh, pieces of the culture as well as the practices as well as the, uh, the, the, the practice of the six pager, right? So that's why my question for speed was, since you've also been very aggressive on your pace of growth, how does that translate all of that complexity? Because that's built over several years and now you have to rebuild it in a much shorter time frame. So how do you do that? Yeah, so look, 90% of the team when I started out was new to Amazon because Amazon exactly. was new to India, right? Exactly. So it's not like I had tenured Amazonians doing this. And so uh, it's, it's part of the leader's job to uh, create culture and, and then drive adoption of that culture. How old were you at Amazon at this point? 
I was on day one, right? Like I joined Amazon and I was exactly. responsible. So, so, so here's what I did, right? Um, I took it upon myself to say, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be an Amazon for one year or 10 years, but I know I'd like to go found companies over my career. Amazon gives me an opportunity back then to start out with grocery. And so I want to learn what makes Amazon great, right? Because that's what I admired about the company. And so I went and read all the shareholder letters. Sorry? Which is why we're doing this conversation. Exactly, exactly. And so I went and read all the shareholder letters that Bezos has. This is public information. Anyone can read them. And then I read whatever books were available. And that's why I thought I'll want to have you here. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I found that the single most useful thing across all of my learning. And then obviously Amazon internally has a bunch of senior people, especially when we started out in India, who had come in from Seattle. And so those folks were able to uh, help mentor me and, and give me insight into how to do these things. And then I quickly realized as I hired up a team that there was no formal central mechanism other than induction to drive culture. So I took it upon myself to drive culture. And we had a, uh, a saying back then that Amazon India, we need to be cowboys. We need to go out there into the wild, wild west, if you will. And there's a lot of ambiguity in India back then, especially, right? We, no one knew what e-commerce could be, would be. And right. so we had to go and make uh, decisions in ambiguity and the lack of information where perhaps a more mature Amazon in the US would wait and watch. But in India, we're encouraged to move fast. So I created that cowboy culture within our team as well and said, you know what? There is no online grocery player who has more than a couple of hundred orders per day back in 2014. And so we took it upon ourselves to say, we're going to get big fast. We did not really know, to be honest at that time, that we would be the largest online grocer uh, over the years. But when we started out, it felt like any other startup because there was no other support or help for grocery, right? You're basically operating your own business and figuring it out. And then creating multiple businesses over the years as you figure out product market fit and customer needs and creating the product portfolio that maps each customer need and so on. That's part of the culture of innovation and being customer obsessed. When you figure out that gourmet grocery need has been served by this product, but you need to de develop a different product platform and a different technology for two-hour delivery of um, fruits and vegetables and that kind of stuff, that forces you to then innovate again. And so that innovation cycle is something that Amazon does really well. Quite tempted to ask, it's an off-topic question, but are you also going to the 10-minute bandwagon? I think, I think the way we, yeah, <laughs> I think the way we think about these things is we pay attention to what customers want and we don't particularly pay attention to what uh, other folks are doing in our space. And so we always want to make sure we benchmark the customer experience options and make sure we stay relevant. But at the same time, frankly, you know, in 2014, there were 50 startups trying to do grocery, three remained. And then 2017, 18, similar story plays out. So I think yep. if you look at the business, the history of sort of venture capital funding and investment cycles, it's, um, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And then over time, you figure out what really works. Is there a customer need for 10 minute or 20 minute delivery? Absolutely. Is it a meaningful enough, large enough need? And is there an innovation on the fulfillment cost structure and technology that allows you to serve that need at scale profitably? And I think that's the challenge for us 
Will there be a startup or two that does this well? Absolutely. Is this year the last responsible moment to build that business? Is it going to be a billion dollar top line business? That's the way we think about it. You'll wait. You'll wait and you'll build it the right way. If at all you do it. Yeah. You want to make sure it can scale, right? You don't want to just raise the next round of funding by showing a pilot without actually knowing. You, what Amazon, so you don't need the next round of funding. So now going back to the earlier thread around when you talk about velocity and all of this induction and training in buddies, uh, there was a certain amount of support infrastructure that you had created perhaps to start with when you were building this out. So I'm curious, yeah. what would that look like? I mean, does it look like a large HR team which does this or is there like the managers who take on additional roles and responsibilities uh, to cover for their uh, team members being inducted well? Yeah, so it's the latter actually. Our HR teams are actually structured in a sort of service-based model so mm -hmm. our HR teams are not actually inside the business they're more central teams. And so all of the culture building stuff happens uh, within our teams. We may have, for example, one or maybe two training programs during the year that we encourage employees to attend. For example, how to interview at Amazon, uh, for example, day one culture, for example, how to write at Amazon. These are kind of skills that, that most people may not already have from their previous careers. And so we make sure we have people attend these uh, more generic training programs. But for example, within our team, because we were constantly innovating and building, right, and adding to the product portfolio, I would personally take on the role of training our teams. So every new batch of people who joined and we drew very quickly, I would run training programs, usually over four weeks, where I would teach some of the uh, principles that sort of make the most sense for Amazon in our context to these folks. And so that was uh, a real privilege, actually, because I really enjoy doing it. So now, once the HR teams found out I like doing that, they've made me the sort of trainer, along with other leaders, for some of the more generic courses that uh, are taught to all new joinees at Amazon when they come from MBA programs and other companies. But so was it just your natural fascination with doing this, or do you also see value in prioritizing, allocating your time? Because as a founder, you practically have, I don't know, millions of things on your plate. And you always still made sure that you were prioritizing and taking time out for doing these trainings. So how do yeah. you rate that on your you know, value scale of uh, what's important? Yeah, in all humility, um, I think that Amazon provides me the canvas to think like a founder while not having the administrative overhead, right? Of the, of the many less value adding things that founders need to do. And mm. so maybe that time is where I contributed to the overall organization to say, I enjoy sharing uh, ideas, thoughts, concepts, the process of teaching, maybe I'll go do that in the long term, uh, uh, full time. And so it's just something I chose as a way to contribute to the overall organization. And many people do this. And uh, many leaders also contribute time interviewing for other uh, organizations as bar raisers and others may go and develop IP and patents and so on for the overall organization. So I guess each person, depending on their skills, superpowers, uh, passion, contributes to the organization in a different way. So would it be fair to say that founders should definitely do this whole cultural induction thing uh, very actively till probably they reach 100 odd people or whatever that number is. And then these 100 people or these managers should be in a position to take that mantle over. Is that how we would recommend a founder to build? Yeah, that sounds intuitive to me. That's the way I do it. You should have the founder teach the first 10 employees and then have the 10 teach the 100 and so on exponentially. 
Yeah, because uh, what tends to happen is like, you know, of course, the non-value added overheads uh, do exist. And uh, among the crazy number of things that the founders have, sometimes these things get uh, deprioritized and that ends up not working out well for the company because uh, the culture is what it gets set in the first few months or maybe a first year. And beyond that, it becomes super hard to repair or fix it, right? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Hmm. So you mentioned the batteries a bit a uh, couple of times. Uh, could you could you deep dive into what that means and how you actually enforce that while uh, maintaining the velocity of team building? You had to grow really fast, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the bar razor program is a mechanism that um, Amazon developed to make sure that when we uh, hire a new employee and have them join the team, that the team becomes better as a result. So we define the bar that has to be cleared that does this employee, potential new employee, um, do they exceed the bar defined as at the 50th percentile of existing employees in that job family? And that basically says, if there are 10 uh, SDE ones, you know, coders from university, and we add 11th, then is that 11th person as per the interview process uh, in the in the opinion of the informed opinion of the interviewers at the 50th percentile of that 10 set of people or higher, right? If they're not, we would rather let that candidate move on than add them to our team. And this is supposed to ensure that we're constantly raising the bar for our talent pool. And how does this play against the speed of growth once again? I mean, you, you probably have like a plethora of people wanting to come in, so it's easier to filter. But would you think it's easy enough uh, to be in the founder's shoes when they not necessarily have that kind of inbound talent flood? Uh, well, you tell me, Ankur, if you, would, if you would build a company with people who lower the bar, in the long term, speed will be irrelevant because you will not have the best quality of talent. So you have to trade off the short term and the long term. I'm not saying it's not hard. It sure. is hard. There are yep. candidates who are on the fence and it's a, it's a, it's a tough conversation. But um, if you don't have that mechanism in place, it's very easy for hiring managers dispersed across the company to optimize for the short term because they're human without the opposing force of having a specific individual called a bar raiser whose job it is to make sure the overall bar of the company is being raised, right? It's a human behavior thing. Many of these Amazon principles and mechanisms are designed with a deep understanding of human behavior, which I'm a, a big student of. So the hiring manager is usually going to be different from the bar raiser. This guy needs the candidate right away, but this guy's going to make sure the filter doesn't get uh, compromised. That's right. And uh, in, 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 in different words, what you've said is if founders are basically going to hire for speed and compromise quality, it is not going to end well, which is probably the truth of a lot of situations that we see panning out, right? Yeah. So, I, yeah, mean, I, can't, I can't speak for founders. Judgmental about it. I mean, neither do I have to be judgmental about it. But I think uh, from a building a long term uh, play, I think Amazon demonstrates and uh, lives by these principles. That's quite compelling. Awesome. Yeah. So, you mentioned a point around Amazon being successful across several industries. Now I'm going a little beyond grocery because we've uh, gone a little depth on that subject. And would you would it be fair to say that the same theory or the same set of principles you applied here tend to get applied to new businesses, new geographies, new uh, you know initiatives that you drive across Amazon? Absolutely, successfully. 
I mean, yeah. you've succeeded in a lot of things, right? Yeah, actually, the short answer is yes. Uh, we're headquartered globally in Seattle, and we're increasingly in many countries around the world. And um, we have the exact same culture everywhere and a lot of global mobility, right? So I'd invite people listening to this, if you're considering applying to Amazon, know that you're considered global talent and the mm -hmm. culture you find everywhere will be roughly the same. And of course, that varies from organization to organization because human beings vary. But roughly speaking, we try and keep the culture the same everywhere uh, we go. And that's a big well, so this would translate nearly into a playbook, right? Because a playbook is what you would call as proven itself and validated across many times and many iterations. And, and what you seem to be suggesting is this is the Amazon playbook. It works for you. Maybe 80% of it would work for others and they need to adapt a little bit, but that's what it is. It's a playbook. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hey, I have friends who are founders of unicorns in India who over a coffee will want to learn more about what you're asking, which is how can I learn from Amazon's playbook, if you will. And frankly, I'm not a subject matter expert. There are no books out there which capture with, you know, tenured Amazonians who've been there 20 years or deep interviews and capture all this stuff in great detail. And I think um, Amazon may not be the only one. There are many different cultures and very successful companies out there. But certainly Amazon has proven that some of its most distinctive ideas are worthy of consideration by founders. Yep, so that's what uh, you you mentioned about the rate of innovation in a trillion dollar company. Uh, so that, that's where the lessons for startups are, right? Because we're building out a teams from pretty much, let's say, seed stage to series A stage. And these guys are looking at a long journey going forward. Uh, what would be the first bunch of things you think they can imbibe, uh, you know, given that you've been in a founder kind of mindset within Amazon? So what was the sequence uh, that would probably be appropriate to follow? You can't obviously, you know, boil the ocean or have a 27-year-old mature kind of play available on day zero. So what should, how should you break it down? Yeah, I would think, I would think that each founder brings their own lens with how they view the world. And that's based on their experiences, their condition, their personality. That's the human being. And there may be a founding team. And then there's what is the market opportunity, the customer opportunity, the customer need that they're trying to address. They may then be the technology they build, the operating capability they build. Right. If I think about these three, I wouldn't worry too much about culture stuff right in the beginning because you've got a very small group of self-selected people in the founding team. But it's a good conversation to have upfront and early saying, what kind of people do we want to have on this team? What kind of um, culture do we want to build? What do we want to stand for? What are our values? It may be worth a one hour conversation and take a quick look at Amazon and Apple. And uh, I like PNG, by the way, a lot as a as a. Um, company from the previous century that I think has a great culture and so on. So does Unilever and um, look at different sort of leadership principles, value statements and say, which of these resonate for us as a group? That would be one hour quick brainstorming session in the first few months. And then when you go from the first founding team to the next set to the next set, you need to codify it at some point. And as you start codifying it, you might write down a set of values. You might write down a set of tenets, how we will operate becomes important and it tells founder should do. Say it again. You would say the founder should do all of this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do not believe unless they tend to step aside as leaders and just remain mm -hmm. either technical only or remain um, advisory at some point. If you plan to lead large groups of people, you have to have shared norms of how you'll operate. 
Otherwise, you'll run into all kinds of different cultural value systems that don't align with each other as you add people from different um, areas. And we live in a global talent pool uh, sort of. You uh, mentioned absorbing people to the nature's basket in the metro. So, of course, uh, the amount of cultural mishmash that could bring together could be quite a nightmare. Except, as, except as you may remember, you're interviewing yes. for the leadership principles. Sure. So, if you find someone is very skewed, then you will say, wait, that skew may be great for them, but it may not be great for this organization. Mm -hmm. So honestly, so, the people I've hired from those companies, Ankur, they remain with Amazon and they've had amazing careers rotating in different countries around the world, getting promoted. And you would have said when they joined Amazon back in 2014 that they would not succeed, but they have succeeded. And maybe I've also, to be fair to your question, made an extraordinary effort to help those who come from dramatically different industry backgrounds to integrate into our culture. So that's kind of where uh, the founders uh, attention span or slash allocation of time on this whole thing of uh, bringing people together and getting them to uh, either absorb or uh, be absorbed in the culture, so to speak, becomes very important, right? And the founders, if they're chasing one out of capital trades after the other, might just end up not being able to pay attention to this. You know, uh, Ankur, there's a really helpful framework here that, I, that, that we teach at Amazon. Um, so, so I've had the privilege of, you know, right place, right time, right team members, right company. We built a billion dollar business growing really quickly um, with a portfolio of products and so on. And not everyone has that opportunity. So I want to make sure I'm humble about being in the right place, right time. That said, I think the way we think about where you spend time is by leverage. So ordered by leverage, the largest amount of time is mental models. How you look at the world determines um, where is opportunity, where you spend your time, right? So an example of a mental model is our leadership principles, how we should work as a team, which goes to your culture point. Then the next biggest leverage comes from people and driving adoption of the culture, hiring the right people. So I would argue that ahead of hiring people, most founders, most books of the great founders that you and I have read would say people, 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 highest leverage activity, right? And I would say, no, what is not said above that is that in a relatively homogenous culture of Silicon Valley, maybe a lot of people have the same culture and you have the same innovation and the same universities pumping talent in there. We don't have that in India. I didn't have that starting grocery. Sure. And so you had to invest time in driving mental model and adoption of it, because otherwise you would fail. You would run into the inevitable conflicts over months and years that arise when people are not aligned and they're pulling in opposite directions and it gets pretty, um, uh, not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Ugly is what probably you're looking for. So now uh, having said this, you've been a leader and the leader typically ends up having his own set of opinions. Sometimes it could be called as whimsical uh, approaches. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the team having a very different standpoint and uh, a viewpoint. So, you know, how dictatorial can this get vis-a-vis -vis how democratic this can get? Uh, there's always this weird complication. And you mentioned something about the decision bringing the people together and having counter opinions. So what kind of, uh, you know, how do you deal with disagreements and do you encourage them very well, extremely? How does, how does that happen? Yeah, I think, look, Amazon has a certain approach and then each leader you know, translates that into their own language and leadership style. 
So for Amazon, I think um, if we are customer obsessed, if we all have the same data, if we have um, the same principles we operate, then a lot of the time you'll get to the same conclusion, you'll get to the same decision. And so again, having the same cultural sort of grounding and training, uh, having the same document that everyone reads and speaks up and says, let's not make a decision today, the document's incomplete. Let's postpone the decision, update the document with everyone's input if something new has emerged so that everyone has a chance to contribute to making a high quality decision. I think that's Amazon's approach, right? Same values, same culture, and then uh, have the document um, reflect everyone's input. You tend to arrive at a consensus. Now, when there's a difference of opinion, you got to spend time and understand why there's a difference of opinion, right? So I personally have been through my own journey of being relatively young. I was 28 when I came to Amazon. And so I've had the opportunity to um, build out a um, build out a leadership style over time. And that started out as being, as with most young people, more the telling style, more the trying to um, trying to influence people based on what I knew. And then I moved along the journey to, wow, I have really senior, really experienced people on my team. Let's make sure that everyone's voice has equal influence to now I'm sort of more um, empathic and listening and, and compassionate. Because what I've realized is in the long term, if you ever try and be what you call dictatorial, one might reframe as um, uh, uh, less listening and more telling, I think you will find that you will not attract and retain really big leaders with you, right? And so big leaders want to be able to influence, want to be able to uh, have their judgment be trusted. And so the people I work with run the business for me, right? So I have a, a, a different sort of uh, executives running each part of our business. And these folks don't really need to be told what to do. They're all very driven, many more experienced than me. And so the leadership style I choose is to help them problem solve and unblock as a coach, as a partner, rather than trying to be hands-on and doing the job for them because then they may not find it a great place to work. Now, keep in mind, this is a journey at the, at, at the, at the um, culmination of many years of building out teams and people, right? It may or may not work in the beginning. So I just want to caution right. on that. Yeah. So not too many decisions now come to your table or still do they? Only the hardest ones that nobody else could solve <laughs> gets thrown gets thrown at me. Um, and so I have to spend time on those ones. Hmm. Awesome. So now, uh, given that it's uh, a listed company, right, and you have a certain level of velocity that you need to adhere to, that leads to a certain level of pressure at some point as well, in some sense. So vis-a-vis -vis the whole positive side of the motivation and excitement of coming to office every day, and on the other side, you have the pressure of delivering to a certain set of outcomes. How do you balance navigate this as a leader in the team? Yeah, I think at Amazon, there's a, there's a significant focus on our controllable inputs, right? So if the output is sell 100 widgets, but the input is build out the product roadmap. The input is drive the traffic and adoption plan and growth plan. The input is look at the hiring for your teams, operational execution plan for your teams. 
These are controllable inputs that when we set goals for individuals, for leaders, we sort of write out what these controllable inputs are. And then we have a separate section for each person's goal sheet, which is the outputs. And yeah, as a chief executive, you're always accountable, the buck stops with you for the outputs. But we tend to focus disproportionately on the inputs versus other companies I'm familiar with um, to make sure that one, we're fair to employees and leaders because many times things happen that are outside their control. But also two, you don't want to be only focused on the outputs because when you're disproportionately focused on metrics, single metrics, you lose sight of the big picture. Yep. And so everyone knows that if you're in FMCG or CPG, you can stuff the supply chain and improve your quarterly numbers. Everyone knows that in social buying, you can have groups of people buying from each other and inflate the numbers. I think all of that stuff exists because people are optimizing for a single metric, which yeah. I can understand the, the system might be uh, not helpful. But certainly in the long term, you want to build billion dollar companies. You want to have a focus on the controllable inputs while keeping an eye on how they drive the outputs in a sustainable, predictable fashion. So interestingly, my next question was going to be about mentorship and coaching. Uh, when you were uh, starting out on this journey, you mentioned some bunch of people within Amazon who coached you and guided you through the journey. And was it purely inside the Amazon ecosystem or did you also possibly consider having coaches slash mentors to grow, to help you grow as a leader? Because you, no, you're doing a lot of things for the first time, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two or three sets of mentors, right? I literally have on my phone, I have a notepad with my list of mentors, right? Uh, and that always helps me when I'm struggling a bit to go look at the list and think, who can help me out? Mm -hmm. um, and so I would group them into the following buckets. There are folks who have been either part of family or friends growing up and people who I respect. And so, you know, I'm lucky my parents are both XLRI MBAs and all that stuff. And so I always can count on them for great advice. And then through my career, I've had a few people who have been either founders or chief executives that I've kept in touch with over the past 16, 17 years. And then there's uh, people at Amazon who've been part of Amazon for many years and are very senior who've been kind enough to sort of take the call when I need some advice. And so I think between those three, I've sort of chosen uh, different mentors at different points in time. And I would advocate that if you don't have, as a young founder, a set of mentors to talk to, then make that your number one priority because uh, you have to invest half an hour uh, every month to talk to someone who has perspective and I've seen successful uh, founders always do that. They're always talking to people. So would you also say to the extent of having a, let's say, personal tracker of sorts on, um, I don't know if you have a system of reverse feedback, but whatever limitations you have as a leader to systematically approach this towards an optimal scenario, let's say in a year or a you know slightly longish time frame? You know, um, it's great that you asked that because a couple of years back, I asked myself, um, about my growth as a, as a human being, not just as a business leader. And I actually wrote out uh, vision 45 and vision 50, right? What do I want to have life look like and me look like? And I identified a couple of thinking patterns and habits that I was like, if I could work on these over a five-year horizon, not one year, Uncle, because most of us think in one year, but you know, yeah. there's also this quotation that says, thinking long-term is the biggest lever uh, that we have. So if you take a five-year horizon and then imagine a set of neurons that are fairly strong, for some people it might be eating too much sugar, for other people it might be not running enough or whatever cardio exercise you want. Um, 
pick a couple of things and say, this is what my life looks like five years from now. And, and then use that to reinforce what you want to see happen. It's a pretty powerful way of uh, thinking about the future to sort of imagine that future and then try and uh, achieve it. Do you also kind of connect the intermittent dots in some fashion, measure yourself? Uh, not really, man. I think I try and take a look. Uh, I try and take a look at that every once in a while, but uh, right. I don't really uh, have a systematic way of doing it. I know people who do that stuff. I'm just personally not that rigorous or disciplined yeah. of that area. Awesome. So, what would your team now describe you as? Uh, we don't uh, take that in a moment, but yeah, I'm just curious on this one. A few words. I don't think it's a blind spot for you. I'm sure you have a clue. I mean, you know, in our we, we, we do a 360 every year formally. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can actually see what, what team members are saying. And and the things they talk about strengths and growth areas. So the growth areas for me are probably things like needs to go deeper because I, I manage a set of different businesses. And so when there are problems that I'm unable to solve, it's because I can't spend enough time on them. So it's a fair feedback to me that we wish you could spend more time to go deeper. Um, and also where I have subject matter experts, I need to leverage the subject matter experts because I'm not an expert on healthcare, right? I have doctors with 20 years experience doing that. I'm not an expert in machine vision for fruit ripeness, right? So, so these are sort of the areas where uh, people wish I could spend more time and I think about it and decide I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust the judgment of uh, the right leader. And, you know, some of that is also personality and some of that is creating leverage for the organization. Other things that they might say um, uh, in, in superpowers would be sort of thinking long term and creating uh, culture and, and vision and trying to sort of execute uh, based on that vision and culture and people probably shows up a bit. Thank you so much, Siddharth. This has been absolutely fabulous, amazing amount of learning. I'm sure we can cut a few sections out of it and probably use them in different places to make sure people get those points right. You don't have to be Steve Jobs. You have to be a lot more empathetic as a leader. And here's Siddharth Lantram. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Ankur. Great conversation. Bye.